Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Even though I'm a bit of a homebody, nature is very beautiful to me, and I love getting out in it. As humans, when we get out in nature by camping or hiking or taking a walk through the park, it lets us reconnect and relax. You can go to a park at any time and run into someone else enjoying the serenity it provides. One park that many enjoy is Bitsa Park. It's one of the largest natural parks in Moscow, Russia that sprawls for over 10 kilometers or 6 miles from north to south, and it covers an area of over 11 miles or 18 square kilometers. That's much larger than Central Park in New York City. It's home to over 500 species of plants, 33 species of mammals, and 78 species of birds. It provides the perfect beauty and tranquility that one seeks in a park. Bitsa Park is the perfect place for a walk, 
especially if you're with a companion. And that's what 36-year-old Marina Moskalyeva did on July 14th of 2006. She'd left a note for her son saying she was taking a walk with her co-worker at the supermarket, a man named Alexander, or Sasha as he was known. Alexander is a very common name in Russia and is frequently shortened to Sasha. When she didn't return home, he got worried. But his mother had provided her co-worker's number on the note, so he thought he'd just simply call the man and see if they were still together. But oddly, when the man answered, he claimed to have not seen Marina in months. Her son hung up the phone very perplexed. How can this be possible, he thought. I mean, they see each other at work almost every day. And then more time passed, and he got even more worried. It wasn't like his mother to not return. And for her coworker to say something so screwed up as he hasn't seen her in months obviously wasn't true. Things just didn't add up in his mind. So after a little while, he finally went to the police. And they discovered her body in Bitsa Park. She'd been murdered. In her pocket, they found a metro ticket that she'd used to get to the park. So using the timestamp, they were able to go over surveillance tapes. And there on the tape was Marina. And indeed, with her was her co-worker, Sasha. So that was enough for him to be brought in for questioning. Around midnight, two nights later, there was a knock at the door of Natasha Pichushkina's home. And this is at 2 Kersankaya. Please bear with me on all these Russian names. She had first moved to the two-bedroom apartment on the fifth floor when she was only 11. This was one of the Soviet Union's first large-scale housing projects. They were named after Nikita Khrushchev, and they were called Khrushchevskis. Like most poorer families, she shared the home with her entire family. So in the master bedroom was her daughter, Katya, her husband, Alexander, and their son, Sergi. And then sleeping on the couch was Alexander or Sasha. This residence was pretty well known to the police because 10 people had mysteriously disappeared from the area in the past few years. So hoping to provide some answers to Marina's death, they decided to take Alexander into the station for questioning. And Natasha just let him take her son. Because in Russia, you don't question the police. They handed her documents of what her son was accused of, and then they proceeded to turn the house upside down. So what he was accused of was murdering his co-worker in a very vicious manner. In fact, they thought that maybe they'd captured a serial killer, a murderer of over 48 to 60 people. This is the story of the chessboard killer, Alexander Puchinkin. So Alexander Puchinkin was born on April 9, 1974, in a region of Moscow, Russia. And around the age of one, his father abandoned Alexander and his mother, Natasha. She recalls that he was initially a very sociable child. But that was until one day when he had a swing accident at the park. He had fallen backwards off the swing. It struck him in the forehead as it swung back. Now, an adult would be able to sustain that kind of damage. 
but a child's skull isn't fully developed at that point. And it provides only a fraction of the protection for the brain that an adult has. So Alexander sustained damage to the frontal cortex of his brain. And the frontal lobe is a part of the cerebral system and that controls behavior. It's basically the part of the brain responsible for deciding between good and bad actions. So after a frontal lobe injury like that, an individual's choices may be impaired, and this can cause moodiness or irritability. And then Natasha definitely noticed a change in his behavior. After this accident, he became very hostile, very impulsive. So naturally, she's concerned for her son's development. She transferred him out of the regular school he was in to one for children that had learning disabilities. But this didn't help him at all socially. At his regular school, he was bullied both physically and verbally. So after these same neighborhood kids found out about this new school, the bullying became even more relentless. And this didn't help him and intensified his rage. But he had an ally in his maternal grandfather, because he saw something more in the boy. He felt his grandson was highly intelligent and that his talents were being wasted at this new school. So Alexander went to live with his grandfather. And there he was encouraged to seek intellectual pursuits, chess in particular. And this child took to it naturally, becoming a very skilled player. His grandfather would take him to the nearby bits of park and he would engage in the outdoor exhibition games against elderly men. So not only was he a skilled player, he became very dominating in his games. It provided an outlet for his frustration. But this happiness was very short-lived. His grandfather passed away, which dealt a huge emotional blow to the young man. He then returned home to live with his mother, and he was despondent with grief. He tried many things to cope. His mother even got him a dog to take on walks in the park. But nothing seemed to help him. He began to drown his grief with vodka. He still played chess in the park with the old men. And by this time, he was such a good player that even being drunk on vodka didn't keep him from losing games. So the loss of his grandfather was compounded with this incessant bullying by the neighborhood kids which made his hostility increase, was perhaps what was behind his new hobby, bullying kids that were younger than him. So with him, he carried a video camera, and then as he threatened the kids, he would film their reactions. He held one child upside down by his leg and was told that child that he would be dropped out the window of this very big apartment building. Then he would take the videos home and watch them over and over. And it's kind of unsure from researching it when the first murder occurred. Because I read several different accounts. One source says that it was a classmate named Mikhail Oduchuk. And this was in 1992. But by Alexander's own account, he claims it was when he was 18. He said he was seeing a girl named Olga who was a next door neighbor. And apparently, she dumped him for a mutual friend named Sergi. Alexander claims to have thrown him out a window 
and later said that he killed Olga too. So regardless of who or where the first victims were, it's a fact that things kind of cooled off for a while. Nine years passed without incident, and it's not apparent why. Maybe he was nervous after these first kills, but whatever plagued him, he soon overcame it, and then he began a killing spree. On May 17th of 2001, he killed Yevgeny Pronin, and he would kill nine more people in the next eight weeks. He chose mostly elderly or homeless victims, and he had a tactic for getting them alone. So sometimes he would ask him if they wanted to take a walk through Bits of Park and see where his dog was buried. So, I mean, what do you say to that? You can't really refuse because that seems cruel and uncaring. So I'm sure that tactic worked. And then others he would just ply with vodka. And so he would offer them drinks in the park. From there, he would catch them off guard. And he would attack the victim from behind, doing so so he wouldn't get as much blood on his clothing. And then using the element of surprise, he would then bash them on the head repeatedly, usually with a hammer. And then once they were dead or near dying, he would abuse the body further by jamming an empty vodka bottle into the gaping wound in their skull. But the deaths were all virtually ignored by the police. Many people had gone missing from that same apartment building that Alexander lived in. But despite that, no action was taken. These people were predominantly poor or elderly. And even though many of the victims' families filed missing persons reports, they were just blown off. They were just faceless victims in the eyes of the police. And then Viktor Volkov was a former police officer who disappeared. So maybe Alexander knew the heat would be on after that one and he killed left less feverishly with only five or more victims. Most of his victims were men. But on February 23, 2002, he met Maria Virocheva. She was originally from Tartarstan, and she came to Moscow in 2001 to find work. And then soon after getting there, she met a man, she fell in love, and she got pregnant. But she was only 19, in a foreign country, and pregnant. The day she met Alexander, she was very distraught. She was convinced her boyfriend was going to break up with her after an argument they'd had. She was at her job selling stationery near the metro when she ran into Alexander. He'd seen her several times before there, and he kind of knew her boyfriend. So after listening to her woes, he offered her a solution. Money. He claimed that in the park, he had hidden some contraband cameras and that she could sell them on the black market and make some extra cash. He explained that it would be a win-win situation for both of them. He needed to move the merchandise and they would split the money evenly. So she thought about it with a baby on the way and very little money right now. This seemed like a perfect solution. He said all she had to do was follow him to the park and he'd show her where he kept the merchandise. But by the time they got to the park, it was already getting dark, and she was concerned with getting up early the next morning for work. Finally, he led her to a well, 
and he pulled off a manhole cover. I told her to come up and get the cameras. As she came close, he grabbed her and tried to shove her down into the well. Maria tried to fight, but he proceeded to smash her head against the walls of the well. She said, I realized he was going to kill me like this, so I just let go. As she was falling, she heard him yell, take a bath there. She fell, landing in a sewage pipe. And the stream of the sewage was strong, and it pushed her underwater. Underneath the park is a network of sewage pipes. The current underneath is very strong and can reach a speed of 7 meters per second. So the keep from being swept away, she took off her boots and her jacket, and she wedged her hands and feet against the sides. With very measured paces, she managed to move far enough along to get to a ladder that led to the surface. But as luck would have it, she couldn't get the manhole cover off. She was trapped. As she was struggling with the cover, through a crack she saw a woman on the surface. But as quick as she spotted her, the woman was gone. All hope left her. Maria was convinced that this was going to be her deathbed. But unbeknownst to her, that woman had run for help, now returning with police officers. So they took her to the hospital, and after getting checked out, she told the police what happened with Alexander. Instead of looking into her account, they looked at her and said, give me your registration papers. So after looking their papers over, they told her to stay quiet, and they would overlook her, quote, illegal habitation. So realizing that she and her unborn child were spared death, she considered herself lucky and kept the information to herself. Not long after her escape, there was another victim who somehow missed the hands of death, too. Mikhail Lobov was only 13 when he was tricked into going into the woods with Alexander and pushed down into that same well. Lucky for him, his jacket caught on metal right inside the well. When Alexander left, the boy was able to crawl out. And after he ran to a cop and told him his tale, he too was told to just forget about it. Then a week later, he saw his attacker at the metro station. He was screaming and clawing at Alexander, and he had to be pulled away by metro police. And then once again, rather than helping him, they told him to go home. He left screaming at them that they had to do something. The reluctance on the police's part to investigate these accounts played a huge part in this spree. Had anyone listened to either Maria or Mikhail, lives would have been saved. But it would be almost four more years of killings before an investigation even began. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In November 2005, 63-year-old cop Nikolai Zaharchenko was found dead in the woods. Detectives at the Interior Ministry and the Prosecutor's General Office knew that they now had a serial killer on their hands. And at this point, Alexander had ceased to even care to hide the bodies. He just simply left them out in the open in bits of park. Many were found right there in the snow or mud. And all deaths had the same trademark. It was a vodka bottle wedged into a gaping head wound. Officer Nikolai Warolov recalls seeing one victim with a bottle in his head and brains all over the ground. He said it was the most gruesome thing he'd witnessed in his whole career. So there was a murder squad, and it was headed by senior investigator Andre Supernenko, and he was brought in to try to crack this case. By now, the press was all over the killings, dubbing the killer the Bits of Maniac. The team turned to Professor Vladimir Vraronstov, and he was Russia's premier forensic scientist with over 40 years' experience. And after examining some of these bodies, he determined that the victims all died from massive head injuries to the back of the head and face. He surmised that the weapon was most likely a hammer. And even though the police had retrieved the bottles from the heads, no fingerprints were lifted. The killer wasn't stupid. In an effort to stop the madness, the police began even staking out bits of park. But it's a huge area to cover. Even so, they thought they made a break. During a patrol, two officers saw a very suspicious person walking through the park alone. When they pulled this woman aside for questioning, they noticed it was a cross-dresser. After a search of the person's bag, they found a hammer. So convinced that they had the killer, they made an arrest. However, however, this person was able to provide a very solid alibi. They were now back at square one. Then a week later, a supermarket worker was found murdered. The citizens were terrified. People stopped going to the park. And talk of the killer was rampant. Many of the victims were from the same complex. Four were from two Kersonskaya, and two were from four Kersonskaya, which was next door. The older women who sat on the stoop talked nonstop about the bits of maniac. I mean, it could be someone from the neighborhood. 
after a police sketch of the killer was circulated. The police thought they had another suspect. A man resembling the killer was pursued and shot in the leg. He, like the crossdresser, didn't pan out and was released. And at one point, a body was found with a different kind of death, leading many to fear that it was a copycat. The woman found was hacked to death with an axe and had sticks pushed down her throat. So it seemed like there would never be any relief from these killings. And that was until the fateful day when Marina Moscalieva was found. Initially, Alexander denied taking part in Marina's killing. But it was apparent to investor, investigator Supernyanko that he wanted to talk. He had a tactic to get him to talk, he said. I told him I admired him. And he liked that. And then he opened up. It was very important for Puchinkin to t- think that he was a hero. So I made him feel like a hero. Whatever he did worked. He went on to describe the day he lured Marina to the park, promising her a picnic. And being a lonely single mother, she jumped at this opportunity. They spent quite a bit of time having the picnic. And all the while, Alexander debated about killing his co-worker. Finally, he decided he must to satisfy this need he had. But much to the investigator's surprise, he didn't stop at one killing. He then went on to confess to 14 more in Bitsa Park. And it didn't stop there. He claimed that number was as high as 60. After a search of his apartment he shared with his mother, they found something to confirm that fact. He possessed a chessboard, but it wasn't an ordinary one. This one had numbers written on each square. Each number represented a murder he committed and this board was almost full. So after the initial confessions, the job fell to investigator Valeria Sakonva to keep him talking to gather more evidence, and she plied him with cigarettes and sandwiches. And although the crimes appalled her, she was able to get all the information she could. In Russia, the courts will have the person go out and reenact the crime for the camera, and Alexander was more than happy to do this service. Over 27 times, he went to the killing ground of Bitsa Park to show the police what he did. And they said he had a remarkable memory for the details. You can watch these videos online. Bachinkin appears to be very calm and describe what he did. And it's almost a surreal scene. In one video, he's dressed in jogging pants and a Puma t-shirt, showing officers how he smashed the victim's head in with a hammer and then used his trademark vodka bottle at the end. He said he wanted to be more prolific than Russia's worst serial killer to date, Andrei Chikatilo, or the Rostov Ripper. Chikatilo had killed over 52 men, women, and children from 1978 to 1990. But Alexander far surpassed his claim with over 60. However, his idea of filling up the chessboard with victims wouldn't have ended with that amount. He claims he would have kept on killing. He said, For me, a life without murder is a life without food. I felt like the father of all these people since it was I who opened the door to them to another world. He went on to say, I would have never stopped, never. 
Killing made him feel like a god, deciding whether or not victims should live or die. He was evaluated by doctors from the Serbsky Institute, but found to be sane. The doctors did determine that he would most likely suffered from antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. It was a sensational trial that was heavily attended by the press. Alexander paced behind his reinforced glass cage, which was reminiscent of Hannibal Lecter. And even though he urged the court to charge him with 63 murders, they only had enough evidence to prosecute for 48. In the death of Marina, he claimed to know that he might get caught. He said, I burnt myself, so there's no need for the cops to take credit for catching me. I'm a professional. The deliberation only took two hours, but it took an hour for the judge to read the verdict. The man who once said killing was like, first love, it's unforgettable, was sentenced to life in prison, with the first 15 years to be spent in solitary confinement. Russia had declared a moratorium on the death penalty in 1996, so this wasn't an option. When asked if he understood his sentence, he simply replied, I'm not deaf. He will serve his term in a hard labor colony. And in addition, he'll get psychiatric treatment for, quote, personality disorder expressed in a sadistic inclination towards murder. Alexander said, the notions of good and evil are relative things. Some of the victims' families thought the death penalty would have been a perfect punishment. However, Eugenie Pronin's brother disagrees. His brother was killed by Alexander in 2001. He said, the conditions are cruel there. No medical care and the food is bad. He's going to suffer. His former neighbors are still shocked. One man who is a construction worker said, he was always quiet and kind. He said, I'm still shocked. I knew him for years. My daughter was friends with him and in her family. It's difficult to believe that our neighborhood Alexander could kill more than 60 people. Alexander was never even bothered that he was sometimes close to those he killed. He declared that that relationship was more pleasant to kill someone like that, adding that it was more emotional. And I have to agree with a statement by his lawyer when he said the police didn't do their job. He said sometimes it's like the police forgot they're supposed to catch criminals. Russian police do not do their job. Instead, they're busy with things that I won't mention. People living in Russia know exactly what they are. Even my client is ashamed of the police's laziness. And his mother wouldn't comment on her son's crimes either. She just cries and says that he's innocent. And while in prison, like serial killers Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez, he's gotten quite a bit of fan mail and love letters. One fan in particular has won his heart, a shop worker at a children's store in central Russia named Natalia. She began writing to him in 2007, and then he proposed marriage in a letter, despite the two having never met in real life. She's even gotten this crazy tattoo of the killer on her inner arm. It's a picture of his face and a chessboard. She told the Siberian Times, Every maniac lives two lives, and one body coexists two completely opposite personalities. And very understandably, she knows that they can never start a family. 
so they've made an agreement to let another man father any children. He's kept at Polar Owl Penal Colony at Carp Village in the north of Siberia, and their constant letter writing has now been blocked. But this doesn't deter her. Whatever people say, I love him more than life itself. It's never crossed my mind to part with him. She complained that the officials at the colony are trying to keep them apart. Natalia has suffered public criticism for her love, and she insists she has no desire to kill herself, and says that Alexander has changed. Her previous marriage to an alcoholic ended in divorce. She claims she's never been without male attention, dismissing thoughts that she's desperate to marry. The reporter reminded her of a quote by Alexander saying, if he were released tomorrow, he would kill a couple of people to relieve the stress, rape a woman, and drink some vodka. She defended that statement saying he was just joking and that he's never been a proponent of sexual violence. Her fascination with serial killers has been a lifelong interest. In high school, she started corresponding with prisoners. I began to seek to communicate with real maniacs. I wanted to understand them, to talk to them, to learn their world. And then my correspondence with them was not enough for me. I wanted something hotter. And whether this is good or bad, she's now made friends with his mother. I think it's such an odd thing when women fall for criminals, especially serial killers. I admit that I'm very interested in what might motivate them, but as far as human beings, I'm repulsed by them. So I really can't understand how anyone could fall for one. That was the story of the chessboard killer, Alexander Pushinkin. And I think one thing we definitely learned is whether it's Russia or the United States, if you're poor or a minority, your death will really go unnoticed until a large amount of people die. I think we need to place the same importance on all cases. And there's a lot of hard-working investigators whose work gets shrouded in shame by those who aren't doing their jobs properly. We've heard this in many cases. Now, obviously, Russia is a bit different. Police corruption there is notoriously widespread. But had they listened to the two victims who escaped, obviously many lives would have been spared, and he might not have filled out that chessboard. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I want to thank listener Tiffany Jewett Beaver for writing to me, and she suggested a very good future episode. So I'm definitely looking into that, and I'd love to hear from everybody. And as a podcaster, I'm a big fan of podcasts myself. And this past week, I got to attend a local Pittsburgh meetup of my favorite murder fans. And that was a lot of fun meeting other people that are into that same kind of thing. There was a really cool Q&A with a podcast called I Got the Hell Out. The co-host was in a doomsday cult for over 10 years. And the whole thing was very funny and sad and a very great listen. So I highly recommend the podcast. And I'm really glad I forced myself to overcome my shyness and my social anxiety to get out there. Check out the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page. And we have a Facebook group. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, and let me know what you think of the podcast. If you're a fan, please go to the iTunes page and leave a five-star review. It would be greatly appreciated. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next week.